online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Winter Rosé, the perfect party starter, versatile with gastronomy, whatever the weather. Provence Rosé is so much more than just a summer wine. Jeannie Cronk of Domaine Mirabeau is my guest as we spread some seasonal cheer to turn those dark winter nights pink. Still synonymous with uh, summer for most of us, Rosé is, of course, a year-round wine. Those salmon pink hues just as suited to a cold night as to a balmy one. In a cri de coeur in a recent column for Club O, I said we don't squirrel away the Chablis uh, after summer ends just because it's served cold. So seriously, why should we rest the rosé? A wonderful aperitif wine, an alternative to champagne for a party starter. Rosé from Provence has similar premium status to that uh, particular drink. And it's also a seriously gastronomic wine, as at home with Asian-inspired cuisine, as it is with those more traditional Mediterranean dishes with which it's been served for centuries And it's great with the smoked salmon starter in a Christmas lunch as well, uh, while we're at it. Uh, Jeannie Cronk knows uh, all about this. She's the co-founder with husband Stephen of Domaine Mirabeau, one of the best-known Provence rosé brands in the UK and elsewhere. She's also on the uh, board of the CIVP, the uh, trade body representing Van de Provence uh, producers. So she's... um, something of an authority on rosé, which is uh, also a, a passion of mine. And I should say welcome, first of all, Jeannie. Gosh, thank you. You're making me blush. Hi, <laughs> David. It's yeah. good to be back. Making you rosé rather than blush, yeah, exactly. say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, as I say, um, it's, you've been a, a guest with Stephen before, a long time ago now, um, two and a half years ago, and um, it was episode 15. You basically packed up in in southwest London and went to pursue your dream together of making rosé wine in Provence. And you already loved rosé, both of you, at the time, didn't you? We really did. Yeah, absolutely. It's just been the kind of wine that was always our preferred wine for a special occasion. So, you know, other, other than champagne, I would say. So, so all our sort of special moments in life, we always celebrated it or had a bottle of rosé handy. So it just became something that we really loved. And, you know, and in, in, in those days, um, as you well know, it wasn't quite as popular, um, especially in the UK. Um, and we felt it, it deserved some more limelight, to be honest. So, so off we went and we tried to make some. Yeah. And boy, did you make some. And <laughs> uh, I, I know what you mean, though, about that conviviality. It's great as an alternative aperitif. Uh, to thrust into someone's hand uh, instead of champagne at the start of a party. It's actually easier for a lot of people to drink than something that's made uh, in the traditional method with that sort of autolytic character. But actually, if someone just pops over, it doesn't make such a big statement as 
the bang of opening a champagne. It's it's just really nice to just say, do you fancy a glass of Provence Rosé, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of naturally social wine, you know, which is, which is, I guess, also what we really loved about it, that it's sort of, you know, it's, it's perfect for people just, just having a chat, but it still feels, um, you know, special in a way. So, so that's what I loved about it. It has a sort of slightly celebratory, um, you know, feel to it without the sort of, I guess, the formality, um, and the, uh, you know, bigger occasion that uh, where you'd pop a bottle uh, of champagne open. Yeah. And uh, have you always been a fan of winter rosé? Because I've kind of learned to love it. But initially, I must admit, I did associate it with the summer. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. It's, you know, it is still fairly seasonal. But um, I, th- I think um, I drank it sort of merrily all year round, but um, but also in the past, as you'll probably remember too, being being old like me, um, you know, it wasn't just that available in the winter. So we we were kind of probably a bit more constrained as well uh, by sheer availability in shops, and that's changed. You know, that's changed in the last ten years. Um, I mean, we quite regularly now um, are part of you know the big waitrose Christmas promotion, for example, where they do ten great bottles for 10 pounds. So these are things that we've done um, in the past. And that shows that rosé sort of, you know, made its entry um, into the winter season as something that people will actually choose for, say, a, you know, an aperitif, a Christmas party, or even a Christmas lunch. Yeah. And you're right. We weren't really given that option before. And such is the success of the love affair with Provence Rosé that we definitely are now. I wish we had it on more uh, restaurant uh, wine lists around this time of the year. Um, Sommeliers still tend to seem to think it sort of hibernates or something, which I find very frustrating. Why would you say to someone that they should drink a winter rosé? I guess, um, A, it works really well with some wintry foods. So, so that's a nice, a nice point to consider. So, I mean, for example, it works really well with, with a raclette or with a fondue, um, or also, uh, you know, with lots of sort of, I guess, wintry appetizers, all, all sort of chicken, fowls, you know, it's, it's a really nice, um, it's a really nice wine actually with, with a lot of foods. Um, and that food friendliness, you know, like you say, that doesn't stop in winter. It's not something that, you, you know, you, it's often just a case that people just haven't tried it, you know. And once they try it, they sort of get over this feeling that, you know, rosés can only be drunk when, you know, the sun is out, the barbecue is running and, uh, you know, and certain other things are in place. So it's it's just it's just a gorgeous wine. You know, it's got the lusher aromas, obviously, because it's made from red grapes. So it's got a bit more body than white um, or tends to have a bit more body than white. And in our rosé wines, we also have some that are a bit stronger in sort of in in, in flavor. Um, And those will be the ones that lend themselves really beautifully to winter drinking. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting you mention um, that kind of barbecue thing, because even in Britain, which does not enjoy the uh, best weather uh, in the world. I think we'd all have to concur. (laughs) Um, People still cook outside in the winter. They still cook outside at Christmas. You might have a green egg or something like that. One of these beautiful um, outdoor cookers. And actually, we do, even when we're wrapped up, uh, as long as it's not raining, we spend uh, time (laughs) outside in the festive season, don't we? And and that just just really calls for um, uh, something lovely like a Provence Rosé, doesn't it? 
Yeah, you are a hardy lot, I must say. (laughs) We're a bit softer down here. But yeah, no, it really is just a case of giving people, you know, the opportunity or a little impetus to kind of try it and you'll see it, 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 it works beautifully. Uh, with lots of foods and 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 lots of moments, even when it's when when it's it's not warm. Yeah, and I spoke to um, the uh, buying boss of one of Britain's biggest retailers, um, someone you would uh, know well. Who, uh, when I was doing my research, who confirmed <laughs> uh, they sell your wines? They confirmed to me that sales of rosé in winter are definitely growing and you know, at quite a significant rate. So um, is this something that you've noticed in terms of your sales figures for Mirabeau? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, it's already been a few years, I want to say, where the sort of, you know, um, the peaks and troughs have kind of softened um, of our sales figures. And that's obviously great. I mean, we are also quite lucky, I guess, that we've got a market in Australia. So we almost, you know, when, when sort of our summer ends, um, their summer starts. So in any case... You know, our sort of export figures are not not completely on and off like that. But it is great and super welcome that, you know, in Europe or in the US, we start actually drinking rosé more all year round. Um, I mean, of course, I'd love to see even more people reach for a, for a bottle of rosé when you get your friends around for a Christmas party or, or even, like I said, for the, you know, for the main meal. I mean, you know... Um, more would definitely be great, but but we can see a change in 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 how people consume rosé, and that it becomes you know not 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 so uncool in inverted commas to basically um, to basically have one when 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 it's not uh, the summer season. Yeah, and actually that's an interesting idea of yours to effectively hedge by being in big markets in both sides of the world. So effectively, it's always summer somewhere. That's um, uh, very, uh, very smart. It's worth taking stock of, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the figures, just what an incredible phenomenon Provence Rosé has been, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is actually incredible, especially, I guess, against the backdrop of, you know, you know, uh, wine um, uh, struggling in other regions, etc. So, so I mean, the figures are quite staggering, especially if you look over the last ten years. So, the UK has actually grown elevenfold um, from about one million bottles ten years ago to eleven over eleven now. The US has grown sixfold, for example. So, so it really is. You know, it's a it's a fairly rare success story in wine um and and that is obviously wonderful because um we also feel like we make a product that is not only you know it's it's a bit more accessible than than a lot of you know other wines um but it also is attractive to the younger generation but also what's interesting you know it's intergenerational so you'll get people you know i mean my parents quite happily drink rosé with me and I've got, I actually have two drinking age children. So, so, you know, all of us will kind of gather around a, a, a bottle of rose. And I see that happening, you know, uh, in other situations. So I think that's a really wonderful thing that the occasion is just a bit more relaxed and invites people in, you know, from all sorts of, um, you know, also from a wine knowledge po- point of view, as you know, people are often a bit scared of wine. And rosé is just a softer approach, and 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 is a really lovely, um, you know, start to wine. Even if you're if you're a bit worried about it, yeah, it's inviting, it's accessible, and whilst you know we should all be careful about the amount we drink, um, it is 
as you say, something that is not going to um, scare the horses in terms of um, a, a, an introduction to wine. I, I think it was pretty much my own uh, introduction to wine back in the south of France, you know, uh, 30 odd, <laughs> odd years ago. Um, talking of France, um, and of course, that's where you live with Stephen and your family. Um, it always amazes people when I tell them that the French drink more rosé wine than they drink white wine. Yes, so they do. So so about 35% of uh, wine consumption in France is rosé. Um, white is at 22% and red at 44%. So, um, and what's going to be even more scary um, to a lot of people is that, you know, if red consumption goes on the way it's currently going... Uh, rosé may well be the biggest category in a very short time. So, so that is going to be, I think, quite a, yeah, quite a moment also for French wine because, um, the consumer has sort of voted and, and it's an interesting one because, uh, you know, for many years we've sort of battled to be seen as, you know, I don't want to say a serious wine, but, you know, a really well made good wine. Um, that was, um, you know, something that has a place on a wine list, um, even at the best restaurants. And, and it, it does seem that, you know, the attractiveness of our product, um, is clear from a consumer point of view. And, uh, somewhat, I think the trade, um, is, is, it's, it's important that the trade somehow understands and opens their eyes that, you know, there's, there, there is this change in, in popular taste, basically. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, in this country, the consumers um, led the way. And to an extent, people I know within the trade who might still be a bit snobby about rosé full stop, um, they kind of played catch up. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely, you know, it's it's a more difficult story to tell. You know, I definitely, definitely noticed that. And and I think as you, I mean, I think we'll we'll speak about it anyway, but you know, we see so many interesting wines being made around us now. People, you know, experimenting with a lot of things, you know, gastronomic rosés, you know, barrel-aged rosés. All of them, though, still within, I guess, our slightly, um, you know, lighter conversation, more accessible kind of, you know, way of presenting it. Um, but it, it, there are wines that are just, you know, beautiful. There are some that are very easy drinking and that are aperitif. And, but, you know, there's loads of other wines like that, loads of other wine regions that, that you know, potentially sommeliers don't feel the same way about. But, you know, Rosé has, I believe, its place on, on, on a good menu in the greatest places. And, and, and we keep on adding to, to, you know, to this adventure. Well, let's talk about some of those uh, differences uh, within uh, Provence, because, um, you know, uh, when you talk about Burgundy, um, everybody accepts that Chablis is very different to perhaps a, a Burgundy from the Cote d'Or. And yet I still encounter quite a few people who think that a, a rosé from Provence is one thing. And it, it's really not, is it? No, it really isn't. I mean, we've we've got we've got you know over six hundred um, producers here in Provence. So it's for starters, it's already quite a varied kind of group of people. I mean, people from all sorts of different backgrounds as well. As you know, you know some people with you know also enormous amount of means have have invested here to make wine. Um, so you get some really quite ambitious winemaking going on. 
Um, and, uh, you know, with that come, come wines that are probably also slightly different to, to what you're used to at the moment, but people are ready, um, to say, okay, you know, I've, I've now drunk the, these beautiful aperitif wines and will carry on drinking them. But actually I quite enjoy having, you know, a, a rosé at the table, um, and well, when I have a dinner party, you know, we'll drink something, we'll drink a magnum of, 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 of nice rosé and, you know, sometimes even an oak aged one, um, you know, that is, I guess, quite natural as the category evolves and as people become more fair with, you know, rosé as such and have drunk Provence often for, for a fair few years, they're ready to experiment. And, and we in the region, you know, we're, we're, we've also moved on, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to experiment too. So it's, I think it's a natural, uh, you know, uh, progression really. Um, um, and that doesn't mean that we'll be, you know, we'll be turning ourselves into, into the, the equivalent of Burgundy or something like that. You know, I don't think we'll ever do this sort of micro, you know, appellation system or be, be, be so technical or so incredibly specific, you know, that's just not our, our way of communicating with a consumer. But having said that, that doesn't stop us from, from you know, trying to make really interesting wines. Yeah, and I think where uh, Provence Rosé wins uh, when I work with um, consumers at tastings is um, that there is a consistency in style, which means that if you pick one up, um, you kind of know what you're going to get. But then you have these um, nuances of difference that you can then explore and Obviously, there are different producers uh, making different wines in different styles, as you say. But there are also these um, subtle but um, definitely there regional uh, variations as well through the different appellations um, and also the sub appellations. So the Cote de Provence is obviously huge. So you've got these specific sub zones and then you've got the uh, Cote Valois and the Cote d'Axon Provence. Um, just tell us about how. Um, in you know simple terms, in layman's terms, how the the wines can differ by um, these uh, regional distinctions. Yeah, so you've already mentioned that you know the Côte de Provence, we, it's, it's twenty thousand hectares. So it's, you know it's it's not an insignificant vineyard. Um, and basically within that, as anybody who's ever been to Provence knows, you've got everything from you know the vineyards that basically touch the beach. Um, to the ones that are in the in the you know in the in the in the hills behind you know behind uh, you know the, the, the basically the um, the um, the A8 where you know the motorway that divides the Côte de Provence and two you know you've you've got just endless sort of um, places where you can make wine and some of them are really quite different so and we've got these five particular. Um, sort of uh, sub-appellations, I guess they're called, but they're more, you know, specific terroir um, conditions, mainly linked, uh, mainly linked to, I guess, you know, soil and climate, um, as you'd expect. Um, but you've got, you know, volcanic influences in in, in Frejus, for example, and then you've got the sea influences in Lalande. You've got the much richer soils um, in 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 in, the, in Piafeu, for example. So, you know, it's a really interesting interesting place to make wine. Um, and then within the smaller appellations, you've got Cote which is the smallest, um, tends to resemble, you know, the richer soils that we get in some of the areas of the Cote de Provence. You get sort of wines that have a bit more back, backbone, more power. It's got quite cold winters there, so so a lot of temperature variation, whereas X is, you know, much more sort of 
you know, it's it's a colder, windier, pebbly place, lots of limestone soils, poor soils. So you get very airy, you know, very, very fresh uh, roses with a great acidity. Um, so you really have, you know, uh, you know, a nice range of different um, variations in terms of taste. But what they all have in common is that they're all dry. You know, people don't always know that, but all our wines have under four grams of sugar per liter. But, you know, every every wine I know here is much, much less, uh, you know, under one gram. So that's really important also to today's consumer. But they're super aromatic. You know, that's the great bit about it. You know, they really taste deliciously beautiful. Yes, I think those uh, appellations are uh, wonderful to explore, as I said. And, and I get uh, a kind of beautiful florality, um, lavender, that kind of thing, in wines from the Côte d'Aix-en-Provence. And it reminds yeah. me of the place, such a beautiful city. And there are flower stands everywhere, certainly in summer when I've been there, maybe not this time of the year, but um, oh, really, all year round. <laughs> yeah, oh, really, all year round. And the, 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 it just so reminds me of, of the aromas in the air from those flowers and from those ripe fruits on the fruit stands. And then you've got the Côte d'Aix-en-Provence, um, where... I, I get, as you said, that you've got these, um, uh, I suppose you might, in inverted commas, say serious wines, but actually that uh, is a difficult word to use because it implies the others are not serious. So, uh, yes, gastronomic wines from the Côte of Valois, and they're really good uh, to use, I think, at this time of the year because um, the range of food, you hinted at this earlier with some of the um, suitability of, of, of Provence Rosé. But actually, um, one of the things I think is still massively underestimated is this um, natural affinity with Asian-inspired cuisine. It's 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 really exciting uh, partnership, isn't it? Yeah, no, I've always loved it. Um, and I think, you know, these sort of, I guess, the umami flavours, you know, are just such a great... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost an opposite, really, to these sort of, um, you know, acidic is the wrong word, but this great freshness that you get from Provence roses in general. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I absolutely love it with all kind of Asian food. And um, a friend of mine makes some awesome, you know, sashimi with a sort of ginger, hot ginger and, and sesame oil. I don't know if you've ever had that, but that mm. tastes so great with a rosé or a sort of a bao bun I can think of you know I've had a duck one the other day um but to be honest you, do, you don't need to be choosy I mean all Asian food works really really well with Provence rosés yes we did some Instagram lives a couple of years ago and with some really um hot chefs and uh, pairing <laughs> it with some uh, fantastic uh, uh Provence rosé wines and I'm still making those uh, I kept the recipes and I'm still knocking up these uh dishes for for festive guests because they're they're just uh, absolutely brilliant and they're still available i think if you go back on the the official um uh, instagram page um uh, too uh, we should talk about your own um journey as i said people can go back and hear the full story in episode 15 of how you ended up in provence um which is a, a really uh, inspiring story and a, a great listen um but um since we spoke then um Quite a lot has happened. Um, the business has continued to go great guns, as far as I can see. You were uh, back then launching your first premium wine, La Reserve. Um, it was um, it was delicious, um, and then disaster struck with hideous uh, wildfires that actually um, that, that that threatened the boundaries of your own property near uh, Saint Tropez. Um, just tell us what happened there for those who don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, these were obviously super traumatic uh, moments for us and a huge wake-up call, um, you know, that climate change had arrived at our very own front door. Um, so, so there was um, a wildfire that was caused by a carelessly thrown away cigarette that, you know, just tore through the um, nature reserve um, where our vineyard is is located and, um, and, you know, burned all the forests around us, burned a couple of buildings um, on our property, uh, destroyed our harvest. Um, the vines live to tell the tale, which is great because they actually burn poorly, um, which is um, which is good news and which is why they're often used as a fire break, in fact. But yeah, it meant we lost a whole harvest. It meant our view was very dicey for, for, for the last few years as well. And um, and I guess what's even more catastrophic is is that even though you know the, the the nature around us has really recovered and we've seen just incredible resilience uh, in the vineyards, all that smoke is up in the air now. Do you know what I mean? You can't suck that back down. So so even though people always come and say, "Gosh, you know it it it's amazing how it's recovered," and you know the the the, the oak trees have come back and. Uh, you know, and yes, that's all true. But actually, you know, we can't even calculate, you know, the damage that's that's been done to the, you know, to the ozone layer and 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 things that you know matter for us in the future. Yeah, and you and Stephen are um, big into regenerative um, viticulture. I, I should say you were already before the fire happened. So although it was a wake up <laughs> call, you were already doing that. Um, just, um, people might not know what that means. Just explain in, again, in simple terms, what that is. Yeah. So glad you mentioned it because I mean, we obviously, as you said, we started, um, as soon as we acquired, um, the land basically. And it, it, it means that you, um, uh, you will actually grow a cover crop uh, most of the year round between, uh, between the vines, um, which helps um, obviously uh, take CO2 out of the air and put it into the ground. Um, we use specific cover crops that are nitrogen fixes. So that means you have to add less nitrogen um, in terms of treatments. Um, it's really good for your vineyard. It provides then in the hot season, you know, the cover crop kind of dies off and it becomes a mulch. So it shields uh, the soil. I mean, we think we get about two or three degrees less uh, soil temperature because we've got this cover crop that sort of provides a bit of shade. You know, it's really great for biodiversity. You know, really everything's to love. It's, it's, it's less, less work in a way. You know, you, you need to uh, – less tractor passes. You, you know, you really – we really pass by tractor only, uh, you know, to harvest um, and also to, to, to sow the seeds, you know, and, and maybe once a year we just work in the cover crop a little bit more um, but it means, you know, it's, it's, it saves your, your CO2, you know, your footprint becomes smaller and you can do something to help, you know, this much bigger problem that is climate change. So it's, it's, it's a great um, system. And I recommend anybody who's interested in that, you know, to look at us and some other people who are practicing it. Yeah, absolutely. And La Reserve, I mentioned, um, got off to a great start. It was very well received, um, uh, especially by me. I thought it was delicious. Yeah. Um, I must um, send you some more. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and, and then, um, of course, you couldn't make it the, the next year. It, it's back yeah. now, is it? It is back now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 been back only for a few months because it's 
it's um, aged in barrels, so it takes a lot longer than, uh, you know, the uh, inverted commas regular rosé to hit the market. We've had some really good scores for it. So Elizabeth Gabay has just given it 92 points, which we mm. were super happy. And I must say, if you look at her rosé report, um, also from Club Analogic, um, you know, we did really well also compared to some of the, you know, big, big competition. Um, so, yeah, so it's out and and, and proud and uh, and. And, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to send you some some for your Christmas uh, Christmas period. Um, and it's a beautiful wine that shows off, you know, what you can do with some really good barrels and and, and some interesting winemaking. And it is what I call a sipping rosé. So you know, not that you want to call the other rosés a chugging rosé, but but you know, you, you you drink it much more slowly than you would um, a um, a more normal rosé. Yes, I know what you mean. And uh, it, it's not a swimming pool, what I call it, <laughs> a van de piscine. Uh, it's not one of those, no. Uh, but it is, um, it's gastronomic, but it's in no way, um, there are um, some very successful premium £100 plus Provence Rosé wines that are excellent, but they are seriously gastronomic. Um, you kind of wouldn't have them on their own. La Reserve is, is not that, actually. You, you've kept a kind of Mirabeau, sort of signature to it which i think is very um clever but it, it it's um it, it's worth pointing out um the premium nature of uh provence rosé these days the very fact that you can make a wine at the kind of price point um that you uh, will will uh, put la reserve at um you wouldn't have been able to do that necessarily a decade or so ago in provence would you well, I guess Ott did it, you know, uh, because, I mean, I remember that being, you know, very expensive even many, many years ago. So so they did it, but they were pretty much alone, um, yeah. you know, in the field uh, for many, many years. And then obviously, um, you know, um, Esclan uh, launched Garris, you know, with, with I, I guess, a tagline to be the most expensive rosé in the world. And part of that was, I think, to sort of, you know, to – to provoke people to say, well, if I make it, you know, if I put in as much as a good, you know, white burgundy, you know, why can't I, um, you know, ask as much money for it as they do? So, so I think that's, you know, that was at the time something that shocked a lot of people, but it also meant people started, I hope, to question a little bit, why would you say that, you know, a really well-made Provence Rosé has to be, you know, whatever, you know, under 15 pounds. It's just, you know, it's, we also have enormous costs, you know, for, for these kind of really well-made wines, you know, at some point you need to sell it for, for the money that you're spending basically and more. So. Mm. And rosé wine is quite challenging to make. I mean, you're very reliant on some very key decisions and some very finely tuned equipment and temperature control and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And that's often, you know, also misunderstood that, you know, there is a real, there's a real savoir-faire, there's a, lots, lots of knowledge here in the region, because it is, you know, as you say, it's low temperature winemaking, you know, which is, which is not easy, um, because, you know, yeasts uh, don't always love low temperature. So, so you have to, you know, you have to actually know what you're doing, because, you know, things can go wrong or get stuck quite easily. So, so it's, you know, it isn't all that easy, even if people try and put it that way. And of course, we've seen a lot of other people trying to make wines to our standards and not really managing because making a pale wine, 
you know, it's kind of anyone can do it. You can always, you know, bleach the color out of a wine. That's not so hard. But, you know, making a pale wine that tastes amazing is, you know, is, is a different skill. And we've really mastered this here in the region. Yeah, I talk to people all the time um, who have seen uh, a wine perhaps on the shelf that looks the right color and looks suspiciously like a bargain. Um, but it just doesn't taste the same. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess, you know, you've got loads of other examples like that, um, you know, in the world of in the world of wine, um, where, you know, I, and I guess, you know, champagnes had to put up with it for many years now to have to have a lot of people going, well, actually, this is this is as good. But then you realize, you know, champagne is a champagne. And when you want a champagne, you want a champagne. Mm-hmm. You know, that still means it's absolutely fine that if you fancy a drink, um you know, with your bestie and just want to have a Prosecco, that's, that's great. You know, that that's, you know, but in our case also there are occasions and there are moments where you go, actually, I want the real deal. And that's what a Provence Rosé is. Yeah. And uh, it is the case, isn't it? That um, uh, unsurprisingly, given the stellar success that uh, Provence Rosé has enjoyed, you talked about the figures earlier on that level of growth. Flattery is, um, you know, um, uh, is the sincerest um, form of imitation to reverse the usual uh, way that that uh, <laughs> uh, phrase is expressed. Um, but um, the trademark colour you mentioned, um, that's been copied um, elsewhere. They can't copy the place. And I guess the challenge uh, for you there in Provence is is to make sure that you make the most of um, the distinctive, special nature of the place. Yeah, we do. And I think, uh, you know, uh, Provence has a real, um, I call it transportative um, power, you know, that you can, you can drink it, you can close your eyes, and you can be there and you can smell the Mediterranean Sea, or you can, you know, you can listen to the to the birds and you know it is it is just one of those rare places in wine where you know when you say Provence you know 90% of people know what you're talking about you know have I guess often a very positive you know I hope uh, always a very positive vision of this place because it is so beautiful and so unique Um, that and that is yes that is a great thing to have because you know so much about all wine is that power of imagination and of, you know, of the sort of, you know, I guess the, the, you know, the picture in your mind that goes with your taste buds. And in Provence, we just got such an incredible, you know, base for that because it is this beautiful place that we all just love so much. Yeah. And I wonder um, with this winter rosé concept, I think that transportative thing that you described the fact that you can close your eyes and think of a place and those aromas take you to a place and the taste does as well um that's quite good i mean it's it's the sky is black outside at the moment in my <laughs> where i'm speaking to you from it's pouring with rain it's cold um and actually um that's uh, is a lovely magical thing i wonder if that is behind some of the success the growth of of winter rosé as a an idea I'm sure, uh, you know, be perfect. Just, you know, sit by the fire with a glass of rosé and, uh, you know, some nice nibbles and and uh, and perfect and dream of summer. I mean, yeah. what, what could you do that's nicer than that? Well, uh, one thing you could do is have a lovely Christmas. <laughs> and um, final question then. Um, I, I'm assuming you're having uh, some decent rosé with your Christmas lunch uh, in Provence. You're assuming right. We will. We will. Absolutely. And we're going to have a, you know, we're, we're, we usually um, 
choose a couple from our range. So, so, so pure is, as we discussed already, perfect for, you know, little nibbles. Um, I, 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 you know, if you're making something with smoked salmon or, you know, I'm thinking some grilled halloumi with some cranberry and thyme sauce, maybe, you know, that would be a really nice pairing. And then we will dig into um, La Reserve for the turkey because that would be just a great, great partnership. So, so yeah, we can't wait, actually. Yeah, great idea. Well, as I say, uh, at the beginning, I, I mentioned smoked salmon. I, I love as part mm. of Christmas lunch. A really good Provence rosé at the sort of second course um, with, uh, you know, some really top quality smoked salmon, a bit of horseradish creme fraiche, maybe a little bit of uh, some some herbs on the top, some dill possibly, but um, uh, really delicious um, combination. So um, happy Christmas. Thanks for sharing the love for winter rosé. It's great to know because I've been banging on about it for for a while now, (laughs) as have you. It's great to know from retailers that this is actually happening. And uh, thanks for... uh for sharing your uh, your story again with us and, uh, and, and as I say, for sharing that uh, love for Winter Rosé, Jeannie. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much. And please keep banging on. <laughs> I will. Don't worry. Merry Christmas, everyone, for when it comes. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. Right, let's round off as ever with uh, a celebration of some medal-winning wines, as always. And uh, the IWSC takes rosé very seriously. Uh, We referenced uh, some of the uh, Club Onologique rosé reports back in our chat just then. Well worth looking at those. But here are some top performers from Provence at the IWSC in 2023, starting with one of Jeannie's portfolio, a wine I know and love, Mirabeau Pure 2022, won a strong silver medal, 93 points. I was fortunate to be on the judging panel for this one, overseen by Dercio Viana Jr. MW, alongside fellow master of wine Ray O'Connor and Eric Zwiebel, a master sommelier. And here's what we said of this wine from the Côte de Provence. A ballet of raspberries, peony and spices unfolds. Vibrancy of acidity on the palate, a finesse to the texture, an elegance to the minerality, an ethereal quality of finish. A gold medal winner from the Côte d'Aix-en-Provence, Villa Montsigal, Chicada, La Légende, 2022. 95 points for this. I was lucky enough to be on the panel for this one too. Uh, We described it thus, uh, bright and expressive, a complex nose with layers of red fruit, lavender and juicy ripe peaches. The palate brings pomegranate and raspberry with wild strawberry and wet stone. Great minerality and length. This wine is not to be missed. From the Côte de Provence, uh, Chateau La Gordon, Verité du Terroir, 2022 won a silver with 91 points the panel including retail consultant cat lomax elliot arwin and brad horn uh, said this red currant and wild strawberry aromas with overtones of peach and citrus that follow through on the palate beautifully balanced and moorish with nice length from the coto d'exon provence chateau beaulieu cuvee alexandre 2022 won a silver medal with 91 points. Here's what we said. Strawberry, red cherry and crystallised ginger lead the journey of this invigorating wine. The energy and vibrancy with its savoury hints give breadth and depth. 
a refreshing long finish. And finally, for now, a lovely wine from the Dalesford Organic Bamford stable from their estate in Provence, Chateau Laube. Uh, this is Love by Laube 2022, silver medal winner. The tasting note says this fresh peach nose and amazing peachy texture. The palate is a lovely meld of citrus, stone fruit, strawberry flavours and floral notes. Good weight and crunchy acidity. Well, that's it for another edition. My thanks to uh, Jeannie. If you weren't already sold on the idea of Winter Rosé, then I hope we might have converted you to that concept. I hope so. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.